All right, so we're in uh, Proverbs 22. And I didn't do the math, but it's probably about 45 seconds of proverb, isn't it? And a lot of the proverbs are like two proverbs in one verse. So we're going we're gonna to skim. We're going to skim. Hit the good ones. Spend a little more time on the good ones. With the wind, I should probably get the mic stand. Okay. Okay, here we go. Let's pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to be here. Okay, let's pray. Uh, Lord, just thank you so much for the uh, wonderful speaker system we have um, here in the park. And uh, just thank you for everybody that's here tonight. Thank you for this uh, great church that we have and just how you're building a body of believers here just to encourage and equip each other and, and just represent you in this city. And God, just um, thank you for how you have uh, protected your word through the centuries, and here we are to study it and read it in our own language. Um, God, give us understanding. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see tonight. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, God. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Ask and you shall receive. All right. How's that? How many times can we hear the microphone move tonight? There we go. All right, now I have two hands for the Bible. That's great news. All right. So uh, Proverbs 22.1. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Loving favor rather than silver and gold. And so um, on this verse, just want to emphasize a good name. And I think, you know, I always my mind always goes to, like, high school kids because I've hung out with them for 15 years. You know, a good name, what does that even mean, you know? And uh, translate that into regular teenager th- thought. Your reputation, your street cred. Oh, yeah, that's how the kids say it. Oh, yeah, your street cred, homies. be fun to read, like, the Ebonics Bible translation. I bet somebody's made one. Yo, street cred. I don't know how to translate that. That would be hilarious, though. Rory, is there? Where's Rory? He's like disappeared immediately. Where is he? Oh, there he is. Rory, is there like an Ebonics translation out there? Probably, but I'll Yo, street cred brings you props with the ladies. No, okay, no. Come back, Holy Spirit. That's what Rory always says. Uh, so, you know, and a good name, there's kind of like, nowadays there's like, you have two names. You have two reputations, right? You've got your persona, electronica, and then you have your persona, actualica, right? You have your, your electronic version that you put out for the world to see, and then you have your actual, you know, name and then you might you might even have three variations to your name especially once you get married you know you kind of have your your name that your children and your wife know you by you know which is like how much of a dirtbag is this guy at home you know and then you have your your name that you're like you know your people of your community know you by 
and then you have your name that like oh he's on Facebook yeah I've seen him he's that guy who posts all that Trump stuff all the time you know oh one of those no offense anybody you know and uh, but but it's interesting here I should probably start with kind of a general overview but you guys are in, we're in the middle of the proverbs but let, let me give let me give it just a overview here of what what are the proverbs how should we read these things um Proverbs, do we, I hate to confess this, but this is my first time here this year. Did we start in 20, oh yeah, okay. So if you if you start at the very beginning of Proverbs, th- there's a couple of uh, nice ones at the beginning that, that, you know, this is the, pro- you know, chapter one, verse one, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of King David. And, you know, there's this amazing story. I'll give you the 30-second version here since I have to do a whole chapter. But, you know, Solomon, um, God God basically told Solomon, hey, ask for anything you want. I'm going to bless you. And Solomon asks for wisdom instead of gold or, you know, other things that a guy would ask for. He asked for wisdom. And so then we have sort of Solomon uh, assembling all of the wisdom that he can find. This is the original Wikipedia page of wisdom right here. And uh, and he says in that, I think that first chapter, he's assembling it for his son. And so as we're reading, you know, Proverbs 22.1, we're coming into this in the middle of a letter or a, a document that he's created for his son to teach his son wisdom. And I was, I was watching a Bible project video, you know, Bible project uh, videos. If you've never seen one of those, you've got to go look them up on YouTube. Sure, 99% of you have seen the Bible Project before, but they they do these great overview videos of like what are the proverbs, you know? And I watched one, um, and the, you know, there's probably they probably have multiple uh, videos on the proverbs, but they they kind of described wisdom as sort of like a spiritual force, you know, sort of like like how there's gravity, you know, and uh, so you know. We all know there's gravity, and you throw something, and it comes to the ground, and oh, that's that's because of the force due to gravity, and uh, but nobody actually knows why there's gravity, you know, and so everybody talks about gravity like it's a fact, but there's some really deep theories of gravity, um, but uh, it's actually one of the few things that that no one really quite understands why it happens still, um, but anyway, you know. Uh, in the same way, uh, gravity is this thing that we just know happens. And, and in the same way, uh, wisdom is sort of this thing that's out there, not made of physical reality, but it's just, you know, causing people to move in a direction. And it's sort of this abstract, untangible thing like gravity. Why, why do objects fall to the earth? That's kind of weird. And, um, Wisdom. Some people tend to move in the direction of prosperity, you might say. And that's that's because they make a lot of choices that fit into this force of wisdom, the spiritual force of wisdom in a sense. And so Solomon is writing a book to his teenage son. I like to think it's his teenage son. My teenage son is currently balancing cups on his face. He could use some wisdom right now. And... Um, and you know, so so now that we you know have a sense of like okay, in context, what are we what are we reading this for? You know, Solomon says to his son, 
my son, Saya. Josiah Owen Olkers, you want to have a good name. You want people to hear that name, Josiah Olkers. And it and it's a B like, oh, that's a guy you can trust. You know? Like if you're let's see who's in here. If you're Jose Campanzano and somebody's like, Hey, do you know of anybody that paints houses? I know a guy. He's got a name you can trust. If you need a guy to paint your house, I've got his card. This is the guy you want, you know? It's like a good name is greater than riches. Like to be a guy who people in the community um, admire and they speak highly of, like this guy won't let you down. If you need somebody for that, this is your guy. That's a valuable thing, you know? And like I've experienced that a little bit in my life. Um, I was... I'm not going to be in charge of the youth soccer program this year. But for a few years, I ran a nice youth soccer program in town. And I had a good name when it came to youth soccer in Prineville. That was a good feeling. You know, people people had good things to say about our little youth soccer program, you know. That does feel really good for people to speak highly of something that you do, you know. And, and, and Sullivan's basically saying... Hey, buddy, you, you know, it takes a lot of work to, to get there, but it's worth it. It's worth more than, yeah, I know you want to cut some corners and make some money quick. It's better to have a good name in your community than to cut those corners and get the money quick. It's long-term, it's wisdom to do the right thing every time and end up with a good reputation. And I'll tell you, I've also kind of got a bad reputation in some ways with my wife. She knows. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess some things, guys. I tell her, we have five children. Sometimes I tell her, we should have more children. And she says back to me, this hurts. I'm not having any more children with you, Johnny Olkers. <laughs> oh, it hurts. I did not get up in the middle of the night with the children. When it comes to waking up at 3 a.m. when the baby's crying... I'm about as good as a brick. And I had a bad name when it came to waking up with the babies. A really bad name. So after five children, she's like, yeah, you're done, boy. You're getting no more babies. And then also, she thinks I riled them up a little too much. It was a little too much fun with them. So she's like, get divorced too, big boy. So, you know, there's things in your life, and I'm sure you can all attest to this, there's things in your life where you've done well. And for that thing, you've, you've got a good reputation. And then other things in your life you haven't done so well. And Solomon is telling you, son, son, do life in a way that you have a good reputation. Man, that is good. It's, it's, it's better than great riches. All right, verse 2. We should be out of here in no time. Okay. Uh, the rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. You know, I think we have a, a, a saying in our culture, everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time. I said this, I was with a bunch of uh, other school administrators on a conference a week ago. We are sitting at dinner, I'm like, yep, everybody dies. And as Christians, we can kind of joke about that, like, yeah, I'm going to heaven. I said that in front of all these administrators, and everybody's like, 
whoa, man. It's kind of a bummer. It's like, well, y'all need to come to terms with that, all right? Like, doesn't matter how much money you have, you know, you're going to die. You have a maker, and you're going to meet him. Um, you know, and lately I've been uh, thinking a lot about how the more, you know, the more money you make, it, it really isn't that important. Um, I did get some verses. We're, we're going to hit the first couple ten verses a little harder than the second ten, so just so you know. i got a few favorites in here. First Timothy 6, 17 through 19. First Timothy 6. It's going to take me a second to find it. First Timothy 6. Should have marked it off. Well, there it is. Okay, First Timothy 6, 17 through 19. You know, they say it's best to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And that can sound like circular reasoning. But here's what, the, here's what that means. Okay. The rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. Maybe this was even... No, this is right. First Timothy 6, 17 through 19. You know, how do we think about riches as Christians in general? You know, the the guy, uh, Solomon here, he's trying to say, like, rich people, you know, humble yourself. You're just like the poor people, you know. And uh, here's here's what Paul says to Timothy. Hey, Timothy, tell the rich people this. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. Any of those uh, homeschooled kids know what haughty means? No? Two points. Two points if you got it. Haughty? Prideful. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be prideful, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So it's a few interesting insights here. He says... He doesn't say, like, command those who are rich to give up all their money and give it all to the poor. He doesn't say that. He actually says, command those who are rich not to trust in their riches. Don't put your trust in your riches. And to realize that the good things you have, God gave you those things to enjoy. Like, he's not just got a complete, you know, anti-materialism view here. But don't trust in your riches because your riches are so uncertain, you know. They could just come and go. And then he says, but here you go. With those riches that you have, let them do good works. Let them do good, sorry, that they may be rich in good works. What's your money for? Uh, it's for good works. It's not for another Xbox. That's, that's a teenager insight. It's not for another boat. It's not for a, a, a new camp trailer. It's not for... A bigger house. It's not for a new diesel pickup truck. It's not for a big hunting vacation. But it's for being rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. That's talking about heaven. You know, like the things you do with your money here on this earth is about storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. Like, like, you, you do in this life with the good things that God's given you, things that have eternal value, where, where Jesus said moth and rust uh, can't destroy. 
that they may hold lay hold on eternal life. Now, I think I think this is one of Americans' major failures in in Christianity. American Christians, I think, in general, we I think we are guilty of, and I'm, I'm totally including myself in this. I just don't think we have the right categories in our in our system for how we ought to be living. Um, we, I think, we really fail at. Um, as a church in general, living out this because I think we don't have a perspective that we are rich. You know, we and we are and we aren't. You know, we we feel like we aren't because we have we have a cell phone, we have a car payment, we have a mortgage, we we have you know the nice food, the nice clothes, or whatever. And so we we just push ourselves to the limit financially. To where we, you know, we and we tithe, and, and so we feel like, yeah, I'm doing it, and you know, we might even give a little bit to the, to the, you know, uh, little kids, you know, Compassion International or whatever it is. But you know, I just think, I think when we get to heaven, we're gonna look back and be like, why did we spend so much money on the things that we spent money on in America? Because because there's these Christians and you know. Iran. There's these Christians in Saudi Arabia. There's these Christians in Africa. And we're not, they're just out of sight, out of mind. And we're just not even thinking about it, you know? And, and I think a lot of times I think we see somebody else in America who's got a lot more money who's a Christian. And we're like, yeah, we're okay. You know, we're doing, doing our small part and that's enough. And I just think we need to reevaluate our perspective on that. But, I don't know. That's my own struggle that I'm just putting out there. But um, back to the proverb. The rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. So no matter how much money you have, humble yourself and realize um, that you're going to die. And that God, you are accountable to God for your life that you live on this earth. Verse 3, a prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. Now, I, I love, I was going to read another verse to you, but I'll just quote it. Jesus says, if, you're, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, right? Now, he doesn't literally mean do that, but he's saying the same thing. You know, a prudent man, which I think is something like a wise man or a man who's thinking ahead, uh, he's going to look and see these things that cause him to sin or these these things that would you know trip him up and he's going to hide himself he's going to avoid sin uh the simple pass on they just keep going right head first into it and they're punished and so in our world today you know there's just so many ways that we can see others who've gone before us and the the temptations that they've fallen into and the risks you know that are potentially there and that we ought to um you know take heed and, and pay attention and you know for 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 uh, solomon's son you know there's a lot of words in the bible about sexual temptation and sexual risk and like avoid that you know in just in uh, verse 14 the mouth of an immoral woman is a deep pit there is this giant sexual temptation that I think is probably the biggest temptation, at least for young men, 
you know, if there was one sin that keeps people from God's kingdom more than any other sin, it's that pe- mankind does not want to follow God's sexual ethic. You know, people do not want to be told what to do in in the bedroom. You know, they don't want God to have a say in that. And um, but you know, a prudent man, a wise man, is going to listen to his father's advice about sexual purity and is going to follow. Uh, the teachings of Jesus really on this and uh, but a fool like an animal is just going to follow his desires straight into the pit of hell verse 4 by humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life Um, humility is realizing who we are what time what time am I supposed to be done about 8 yeah pick up the pace Okay. Uh, humility is realizing who we are, I think. is I, I like that as a definition. Um, you know, maybe maybe it's... No, I, I think that's a good definition. It's just realizing who we are. Realize who God is. Realize who you are. You will naturally be a humble person. And fear of the Lord. These are two really good presuppositions to, to have. To be humble and to fear God. I was actually listening to this podcast last night in it and I'm a nerdy science guy and it's the, it's this uh, Christian uh, organic chemist and these two sort of uh, one guy had a PhD in biochemistry and the other girl had a PhD in microbiology and they're just like kind of like earth muffins you know which to me means um, sort of like you know uh, pantheists you know oh yeah God is in everything you know and and they were they were first talking about chemistry and stuff and and nanotechnology, and then and then the conversation. He's a Christian, this awesome chemist guy I love, and and so he turned the conversation in, into Jesus. And they're like, well, yeah, we go out in the forest, and we we just feel God's out there in the forest with us, and you know, it's just so interesting. Like as he was trying to reason with them about the historicity of the Bible and the resurrection of Jesus, and and he told them that his testimony about how he, when he was a young man, he was addicted to pornography at like age fifteen, and and that Jesus had appeared to him, and he got radically saved and he reads through the bible like yeah we read the bible too and they kind of had the jordan peterson view of the bible like it's you know it's um you know a useful historical document of you know myths and and um they they just completely lacked fear of the lord you know there's no presupposition of any concern for the things of god in in a traditional sense you know and it's like they had just they had erected the god they wanted you know, like there was no, there was no foundation for anything that they they had. They had just created the God they wanted God to be, and um, you can kind of, you kind of, to some degree, people have to sort of choose their presuppositions. You know, like my my, I thought about this a little bit from a philosophical perspective. Like my my kind of starting point, my presupposition is. Jesus. So, like, I feel like for me, I hear the voice of Jesus. I, I see the person of Jesus in the Bible, and I'm going to take him at his word. That's going to be kind of my starting point. And from there, I get to sort of New Testament Christianity. Uh, I take the historical Jesus, you, you know. And because um, we, we all have to have these sort of, you know, brute facts that we start with you know and um but these folks they were just they were just kind of taking these worldly 
presuppositions of whatever they'd learned in public school as seventh graders and not realizing they had them, and then they were trying to interact with this guy. And it's just so interesting. Like, if you don't start with this, this is what you know Solomon's giving his son is um, humility, and, and really, this is I think one of the, one of the major themes of the uh, the book of Proverbs is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And like, you have to start with this godly fear and respect for who God is to reach a place of saving faith and wisdom. And you may not even realize you're doing that when a preacher preaches and you hear the gospel presented and you're just convicted to your core of sin. But like, ultimately, if you're going to stay in the faith, it's going to be this respect and fear for God and his word that keeps you there. And it's, it's such a, it's what Solomon's saying here is a fear of the Lord is the first thing you have to kind of the brute fact you have to presuppose to be, um, pursuing after true wisdom and humility in this text. Sorry, I got to start moving here. Verse five, uh, thorns and snares are the way of the perverse. There's just so much destruction when you go the wrong way. You know, isn't it interesting? I was thinking about that verse. I was thinking, isn't it funny there's STDs? Like, what other sin? Or like, what other thing has, like, its own disease? You know? Like, you sin sexually, you get diseases. That seems like a, like a really strange phenomenon, doesn't it? It's like, it feels like God just speaking to the world. Don't do that. You know? Like... Isn't that weird? And, you know, I wrote down a few other things like that. You know, another one's gluttony, you know? You just overeat your entire life and, and just, like, binge, binge, binge. You you know, you get cancer from being extremely fat for your whole life. Like, not, not as a guarantee, but, like, as a general rule. You get metabolic syndrome, you get type 2 diabetes, you have a much higher cancer risk. It's like, there's just all these things God tells you, don't do these things. And there's even, like, biological diseases you get from doing the things God tells you not to do, you know? Um, yeah, and then spiritually also, like hatred and, and you know, um, being a divisive person and, and the way it destroys your relationships. All these things, um, they're like thorns and snares. You go the way of the perverse, you do the twisted things. To pervert something is just to twist it, you know? You take the way God designed life to flow and you twist it it's going to get all mangled up and screwed up and messed up. He who guards his soul will be far from him. Yet there's this interesting spiritual force called wisdom. And, and you can just go in that direction. It's sort of like um, aesthetic beauty. Like you, you, can look at a, you can look at a tree, you know, and you can see beauty. And then you can look at a tree that has cancer, and you can just know, like, oh, something's wrong with that tree, you know? It's the same way with a person's life, you know? You can look at a life that's been lived in wisdom, and you can see blessing and beauty in that life. You can look at a life that has just been marred and cursed by sin, and you just go, oh, that is not the way that's supposed to look, you know? And it's just like this, this sort of aesthetic force on the life. Um, 
We are, we are definitely not getting through 24 verses tonight. Um, verse 6, train up the chi- a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. When I was a brand new Christian, I was like, sweet, guarantee that all my kids are going to heaven right there in the Bible. And then later on, I discovered that the Proverbs are sort of like the original statistics. The original, uh, uh, yeah, the original uh, sociological statistics book, you know. So uh, this is is my understanding now is, is the Proverbs are like best practices, okay. So the Proverbs are not like, uh, promises. The Proverbs are generalities. Okay? And Rory, come up and strike me down with the sword if you totally disagree. But, um, so, is as a general rule, if you do a great job parenting your child, you know, and you have five children, hopefully, maybe like three or four out of five of them are going to like go the way they should. You know? But there's that one. <laughs> He's been putting his shoes on backwards since he was a newborn. We cannot convince him to stop it. You know? And I heard a, I heard a guy teaching on this, and he said, he said something like, unfold who your child is. So it's not just like, conform your child into the way he should go. It's like, oh yeah, that sounds, that sounds kind of unpleasant. But it's like, unfold who your child is. You know, we were at this conference uh, this weekend. and uh, Or it wasn't the weekend, it was the middle of the week. And uh, and uh, somebody was talking about their spiritual gifts. And I was like, oh, I haven't thought about spiritual gifts in years. You know, you're kind of a young Christian and you're like, what are my spiritual gifts? You know? And uh, you kind of, you know, I've been a Christian for like 20 22 years, 21 years now. And so you kind of, you know, five years in, you're like, yeah, I think I know what my spiritual gifts are, you know? And um, I was thinking about my kids, and I texted each one of my kids today. And I'm like, hey, we need to talk and figure out what your spiritual gifts are, you know? And uh, it's like that, you know? It's like, hey, we need to figure out, like, God makes each one of us different, you know? And you, I have five kids, like, they're all really different. And, you, you know, it's like, part of training up your children is like figure out who God made your child to be for his kingdom and help develop them into who God made them to be for his kingdom. I like that. All right, seven. We've got at least three minutes left. The rich rules over the poor and the borrowers is servant to the lender. God bless America. Capitalism. Okay, verse eight. He who sows iniquity, if you disagree, you need to talk to Thomas Sowell, okay? Verse 8, he who sows iniquity will reap sorrow, and the rod of his anger will fail. Pretty straightforward. Uh, You do a bunch of bad stuff your whole life, you're going to grow a bunch of bad fruit. Uh, Verse 9, he who has a generous eye will be blessed. Well, that's a really weird way. Of saying a generous person. I don't know why an eyeball would speak to a person's generosity, but nobody ever said that Hebrews and Americans would totally understand each other's metaphors. So, being, having a generous eye means 
if you're a generous person, is going to bless you. Jesus said this, right? It's more, more blessed to give than to receive. For he gives of his bread to the poor. I remember when I was a kid, and I was like, that's just, you grown-ups are dumb. That's just not true, okay? I really like Christmas because it's all about number one, right? And then you have your own kids, and you're like, I love giving my children stuff, you know? It's just such an interesting thing to grow up and have children, and it really is more fun to give to your children. Also, when you need a new tool, you just go buy it, so you don't have to wait till Christmas. That might be part of it, too. Uh, Verse 10, cast out the scoffer, and contention will leave. This is called glorious subtraction. Can't say anything specific, but sometimes in our lives, there are people who just need to go away. Don't be one of those people, guys. In the church, in your workplace... Cast out the scoffer, and contention will leave. Yes, strife and reproach will cease. Sometimes there is a person who is just a a goat head in your shoe. You know what I'm saying? And once you pull that goat head out and throw it away, oh, man. I I heard somebody say, why do you run marathons? And the guy said, it's like hitting yourself in the head with a hammer. Once you stop, it feels great. <laughs> like, that's a really strange way to describe that. You know, like sometimes there's somebody who's just so awful to be around. Don't be that person. You know, but that's what he's saying right there. Verse 11. He who loves purity of heart and has grace on his lips, the king will be his friend. I got to stop. But, um, uh, you know, Jesus said, I got to get to verse i got to get to verse 15. Okay. He who loves purity of heart and has grace on his lips, the king will be his friend. Um, Jesus said, blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. I can't tell you, this conference we were at this week, there were so many times. that Here's here's a good example. You guys, Some of you guys, probably a good chunk of you know Josh Bryant from Burns. There's, you know, there's a culture... There's a culture to a, to an organization, right? Any of you who've worked for companies probably know what I'm talking about, or schools, or, you know, even this church. You know, if you've gone to other churches, like, different churches have different feels, you know? And um, we were at this conference, and there were a few different things going on. I was like, man, I just love these people. I love the culture that we have in the Calvary Chapel movement for a number of reasons. And, and I don't even know that all Calvary Chapels in every you know region would feel the same, but there was, this, there was a lot of things that were going on. But there was a moment where Josh Bryant got up to um, speak, or he got up to lead a, a song with his wife. I'm not sure why. It was just one song. And, uh, and uh, he gets up there to the microphone. He's like, yeah, so... So we got up to practice this song, like, by themselves. And then we got in a fight over how the song goes. And this guy's a pastor, you know. And he's in front of all these pastors. And so then we decided we weren't going to do the song anymore. And then 
later the Lord's like, yeah, you are going to do that song, and you're going to go tell everybody what a dork you are for fighting with your wife about it. You know, and that's that's a culture, like, of transparency and of humility. Like, it would be very easy to be a part of a, a Christian community where we where we hide our sinfulness, you know, where we're pr- proud and we don't talk about the fact that we're sinful people and we, we try to cover it up and pretend like we're all perfect, you know. Like the Pharisees, I'm sure, in Jesus' day would never admit that they had done anything evil, you know. And um, there's something very pure of heart in being willing to admit you're wrong and that you did something wrong. And I think that's a very healthy part of the culture we have right now in our church. You know, as I, as I call this out, I, I really do think there's something unhealthy in American Christianity around money that we, we haven't dealt with. But I think we have something really healthy in American Christianity, at least in our little chunk of it right here, where we're willing to admit we're sinners, you know. And um, and that's a, that's a purity in the heart, I think. And when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, you know, it's like, yeah, that's it right there. Just this, this humility to say, I'm a sinner, you know. I listen to this guy on YouTube, and a lot of times he'll, he'll speak, and he'll say, when he greets the, the camera, you know, the people, hey, fellow sinners, you know, it's just like, yeah, man. You know, it's just like, just so basic and ordinary, you know. Um, the eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, but he who overthrows the words, but he overthrows the words of the faithless. I, I got to share this. I, if you got to go, you got to go. But I got to share this. I felt really passionate about this little part when I was getting ready. Maybe this is important to you, but I think this is cool. So um, the, the eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge. This book is a book of knowledge. Okay? The Lord has preserved this book. When I was 14, I had a dad who was agnostic atheist. I had a brother who was skeptic, older stepbrother, skeptic, agnostic. A mom who was a Christian, a sister who was a Christian. And I was the baby of the family. And one day... I don't know how I, I'm driving in my brother's car with him. And, you know, you're, you're 13. I was maybe 13. And my brother's, like, telling me, yeah, the Bible was written by, um, the Bible was written by a guy named King James. <laughs> and when you're 13 and your older brother tells you the Bible was written by King James, you're like, oh. Wow, it's really sad those Christians don't even know that, you know? You just believe whatever somebody tells you at age 13. And, uh, and so I just thought, oh, that's, that's too bad. The whole thing's made up. How sad, you know? That was kind of like my one of my first impressions of Christianity. I mean, I, I was going to church, and, you know, like, and you kind of, you don't really have a, a, a well-formed view of reality yet as a kid, but you just got all these doubts floating around. And, and uh, so... So when I became a Christian, I was really confused about a lot of things. And so when uh, when I first started reading the New Testament, after I became a or even before I became a Christian, but I was I was really interested in Jesus. 
I, I had a, my mom gave me a Bible. I think, oh, but this Bible doesn't have it. But you know how some of the Bibles have the words in red for Jesus? I only read the words in red. Because I was like, I was very skeptical that the Bible was accurate. But I was like, but these words of Jesus that are in red, those are probably right. So I was reading just the words in red. Like, okay, but the words of Jesus, they must have written those down correctly. That's why they're in red, you know. <laughs> so dumb. <laughs> and uh, so this verse here, you know, and this may not be exactly what it's talking about, but I just, I love talking about this kind of stuff. Um, the eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge. God has, turns out, King James didn't write the Bible. Uh, the Lord has preserved his word. Jesus said in John, uh, next page, awkward pause, flip. Jesus said in John ten thirty five. The scriptures cannot be... Anybody know? This is important that Jesus said this. The scriptures cannot be... This is really important that Jesus said this. The scriptures cannot be broken. Actually, I think it was John. It's in parentheses, so it may have been John's little... It'd be interesting to study. But in another place, Jesus said, not one jot or tittle will pass away, like the crossing of the T or the dotting of the I about the scripture. Not one dot or tittle will pass away. So like, as a guy who's like, my presupposition is I, I just, Jesus rose from the dead. I just believe whatever guys who rise from the dead say. That's kind of where I'm at, you know? And so this guy, Jesus, says the Old Testament's inspired. And so I'm like, all right, must be true. But here's here's what's really cool. If King James was gonna, you know, in, invent the Bible, it'd be really smart of him to like put a chapter in the Old Testament that's supposed to be from before Jesus. That's like really detailed about Jesus, and then everybody believes that it's like pre-Jesus, but really it was way post-Jesus. That'd be a great trick. And then you could be like. Oh, it's a prophecy about Jesus, but then it's really a trick, right? So, what's the what's the chapter in the Old Testament that is the like most like whoa, this is Jesus, but it's from hundreds of years before Jesus? What's the like best chapter? Isaiah fifty three. Okay, so here's the deal. Until about I think in nineteen forties, the the newest or the oldest. Uh, Old Testament they had, I think, was like 300 A.D., right? Jesus is, Jesus is 30 A.D., right? So un until about 1940, my, my dates could be wrong here, but until about 1940, the oldest Old Testament they had was from 300 A.D. So you'd be like, yeah, that, that was just, maybe it was 300 A.D., but maybe it was King James in 1600. Nobody really believed that, by the way. But, you know, you could say, oh, the, the early Christians in 300 A.D. changed it, right? Well, in 1940, something like that, some some kid, and I got to go to this place, guys, when we went to Israel. I wish I could show you pictures of this right now. So we went to Qumran, okay? We, we, it's on the Dead Sea. You come down from the Sea of Galilee, follow the Jordan River, and in, 
right at the Dead Sea, there's this place called Qumran, which is probably where John the Baptist hung out as a young man. And um, in Qumran, they found all these caves, and some, like, shepherd guy was, like, throwing rocks into caves, trying to get his sheep to run out, I think. And he hears this crash. This is in, like, the 1940s. And he goes in, he finds all these manuscripts from these pots. And there was this community of people before Jesus called the Essenes. And they had stored, they thought Jesus was coming back. Turns out he was. But they had they had disappeared. He wasn't coming back. They thought Jesus was coming for the first time. And they had stored all their ancient manuscripts in pots in desert caves. And these manuscripts were just left there for thousands of years. And so they dated, they found an entire scroll. And this was so cool because not only do we go there, we went to, what was that place called? The Jerusalem Museum. And we walk in this place. And just to make it even more cool, I don't know if I read about this on Wikipedia, but George Lucas, who made Star Wars, was inspired by this museum to design all of the spaceships in the Star Wars movies after this museum. So you walk through this museum, and it's like you're walking through Darth Vader's spaceship. Okay? It's that cool. I mean, it's just trifecta. Star Wars, Jesus, Old Testament, Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay? It doesn't get any better than this for a nerd. And... um, and we go in, and you go in, and then there's this like weird like dome room thing, and there's this big circular lit up thing up these stairs, and you walk around, and it's the scroll of Isaiah, all the way around this lit up thing. I wish I could show you a picture of this. They found an intact copy of the scroll of Isaiah, and I think it dates to 300 B.C. And guess what they found in the intact scroll of Isaiah? the entire text of Isaiah 53, which I wish I could read it to you right now, but it's just like the most detailed description of the crucifixion you can find, which is written hundred or a thousand, I don't know when Isaiah was written. I should get my numbers straight when I talk about this. 500, a thousand years before Jesus, describing the crucifixion of Jesus. And now we know with certainty from dating and other things, that this was definitely written before Jesus, describing the crucifixion of Jesus, and is exactly, you know, in terms of the text, exactly the same before Jesus came. And so, when this says here, the eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, God has preserved this text. You know, and I mean, that, that you know, there is a number of scrolls they found partial, but the, the really cool thing is they found an entire scroll of Isaiah, which is, I think, for me, the most important, if you're going to find one intact scroll from the Old Testament, the most important one is Isaiah. Because Isaiah 53, in my opinion, is the most powerful prophecy of the Messiah. And um, and so we just have total confidence that the, the Old Testament was not changed post-Christianity. It is the same book that they had at the time of Jesus. All right, now we got to keep rolling. But you think of all the all the false teachings of of history and how much of it's just dust in the in the garbage bin of history. Okay, sorry guys, I'm way over. Uh, Lazy man says there is a line outside. I shall be slain in the streets. Kind of reminds you of oh, I can't go to work. There's a virus out there. Okay, verse fourteen. The, eh, eh. 
The mouth of an immoral woman is deep pit. Yep, stay away from her. He who is abhorred by the Lord will fall there. 15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. 16. He who oppresses the poor to increase his riches. He who oppresses the poor to increase his riches, and he who gives to the rich will surely come to poverty. Um, you know, I just want to briefly touch on 15. When I was um, 22, yeah, 22 years ago, I knew I was going to have kids. And somehow being in college, it was like pretty clear, pretty quick. The idea of spam, I think it was because Jessica was a pre, uh, what was your major called? Early childhood education. She was like being taught in college, don't you dare ever spank a child. You know, and there's some truth in where that point of view is coming from, because people have abused children, right? I bet there's some people right here in this little group who probably have faced, uh, you know, child abuse in their life. Um, I'd be shocked if that wasn't the case. And so there is, you know, sort of this pendulum swing of like you know the sociologists the psychologists they want to say it is never okay to to spank a kid and there's you know this interesting thing is like friends of ours who are christians even sometimes you know i'm just talking about me and jessica i don't even know the views of all the elders on this but um you know people have different points of view on this for me um i really believe in not, I think, and I've, ne- I've never done a long survey on this. Like, I don't have a deep uh, background in all the research that's out there. And I think for someone to do a really healthy job in really pursuing this topic, it would take, you know, hours and hours and hours of reading and research and stuff. But um, as a general rule, for me, I don't think that changing your perspective on scripture because the world is telling you that your scriptural ideas are outdated um, it's just I don't think that's a healthy place to go you know we're facing the same thing around the LGBTQ stuff As as a Christian in college facing the same thing about evolution and creation you know and I just I don't as a Christian, I'm very reluctant to bow my knee to the world when the world is telling me, hey, you can't believe that. You can't practice that. The Bible says that. That's outdated, closed-minded, you know. Um, But at the same time, there is a place to listen to what the critics are saying and then to listen to... We're so blessed in America to have Christian everythings. We've got Christian synthetic organic chemists who are the top chemists in the world, you know, on a topic. That's the guy I was talking about that I listened to. You know, there's probably uh, a really high-ranking Christian psychologist, Christian, you know, early child development psychologist in the world, you know, and so there's just you shouldn't just, I don't think it's healthy for Christians either to just be like, 
you know, and don't get me wrong here, because I hear brothers and sisters say this, and I don't think it's like terrible, but sometimes you'll hear Christians say, the Bible says it. I can't remember how this goes exactly. Yeah, the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. You know, like, like there's a place for that. You know, it's okay to have that. But it's, there's also a place to be academic and, you know, like to really do some homework on an issue, you know. And uh, I can tell you, I probably was more like the, the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. That was probably me as a young dad. I'm like, Eli, you were getting spanked, boy. You better watch out. You know, and uh, because, you know, you respect God more than you respect respect the world and foolishness. I'm not going to disagree with this. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And the Bible, the Bible's real strict on this. Like the rod of correction will drive it far from him. Like those aren't easy words. You know, there's, I think there's a, another verse that says, don't despise the blueness of the wound. You know, <laughs> I think there's another verse that says, I could be wrong here. Um, I shouldn't quote this without knowing it. I just won't. I just won't make that mistake. You know, like, there's, there's just, don't be, don't be too far on either side of something, you know? Like, and I'll, and I'll just finish here, but, um, man, kids need discipline, you know? In my experience, spanking is a really good way to communicate with a child who doesn't yet communicate through the English language. Um, and it doesn't take much. It just takes a little swat, you know, on the butt. And it's like, it's almost a communication of, I'm in charge, you're not. I, I, I can tell you, like, with my little eight-year-old Callie, like, we've spanked her less than a handful of times and I am a lot meaner to her when we were in the middle of a tickle fight and she is having a great time and then I'll spank her when she's in trouble and it's the softest lightest little thing and she is just crushed you know and the tears are flowing and so like um, and one, one other thing our pastor in Corvallis used to say is you never spank your child in anger and I think that's just so wise. And I would just say, man, I failed at that a lot. I have a lot of sons. <laughs> but, you know, if there's any young parents here, I don't, I don't know if there are. But, like, man, don't don't make that error. Do better than I did on that. But those are my thoughts on that um, topic. So, um, anyway... Lots of wisdom there. Hopefully somebody else can take 17 through 29 next week, I guess. That's on you, Rory. All right, well, let's pray. And sorry for my ramblings. Hopefully some of that was edifying for you. Went a little long.